You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Hey, family. It's good to be with you today. Uh, we are going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 4, so if you want to grab a Bible and turn there, that would be great. And we're going to be in this chapter for the next two weeks, and so this is going to be something of a two-part sermon for us today. Uh, it's going to be a little bit more diagnosis this week, and next week we're going to jump into some prescribing. But the question I want to put out there for us today here at the beginning is this. What would you say has the greatest potential to destroy you? What would you say has the greatest potential to destroy you? Maybe for you, it's a relationship. Maybe losing a relationship that you believe you can't live without, you believe that would crush you. Maybe it's uh, being in a bad relationship, a relationship that leaves you unhappy or feeling unfulfilled, that you feel like this would just absolutely ruin your life. Maybe for you, it's something unforeseen happening at your job. Maybe you lose your job unexpectedly. Maybe your career doesn't go the way that you wanted it to. Maybe for you, it's skeletons coming out of your closet. Maybe it's something that people don't know about you coming out into the light and you live in fear of that. Maybe you think about those things or something else and that's just what stands out to you as the biggest threat to your life. But the Bible actually is gonna present us with a different answer today. According to the scriptures, the thing with the greatest potential to destroy you is a lie, a lie. Let's look together at 1 Timothy. This is 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is what it reads. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, that's the Bible's phrase for any time between Jesus' resurrection and ascension and when he comes back to rule and reign for forever, when he's coming again. Right now, it's what you and I are currently in. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart the faith. Now, out the gate here, Paul says that the Spirit says that some people are going to walk away from faith in Jesus. Some will fall away, they'll turn their back. People who once appeared to be Christians, whose lives seem to be marked by faith and hope and love, will one day, for one reason or another, just stop. Maybe that experience is really similar to your own today. Maybe you've got a friend or a family member who, for all practical intents and purposes, has fallen away, whose heart at one point seems so warm and softened to the gospel of Jesus, but now appears to have just grown cold. Someone in your life who was maybe really dedicated to your life group and wanted to encourage people in their faith, who has now gone completely MIA. Someone who would once sing loudly, take the world, but give me Jesus, but whose life now seems to declare, you know what, give me the world and maybe just take Jesus somewhere else. Paul says, this is a reality that will happen. And it's something that we as believers should expect. It's actually really reflective of what Jesus himself teaches in Matthew chapter 13 in the famous parable of the sower and the soils. If you're unfamiliar, he says that the sower will sow seed, which is the word of God or the gospel of the kingdom, on all types of soils, which is his metaphor for people. He says that some soils or people will receive it and they'll bear fruit, but other soils will receive it. And for one reason or another, such as concerns for worldly things or fear or hardship or the devil's interference, won't that there might be some signs of life in them for a bit, but eventually that will dry up and fall away and die. The truth of the matter is, is, that is a really sobering teaching of Jesus. And for the record, despite what you might think, 
this is actually the worst thing that could happen to you. This is the worst thing that could happen to any of us. The worst thing that could happen to you is not losing a relationship that means a lot to you. The worst thing that could happen to you is not something unexpected happening at your job. The worst thing that could happen to you isn't even for all of your dirty laundry to get aired out on a billboard for the world to see. The worst thing that could happen to you, to me, to any of us is that we would fall away from our faith in Christ and spend eternity apart from him. You know, as a pastor, this really has always been one of the hardest things for me personally to wrestle with. And I imagine it probably was for Timothy too. You know, I tend to think that I am far more in control than I actually am. So I believe that if I can just teach good enough or if I can just make the right leadership moves, if I can just do what I'm supposed to do as a pastor, then falling away won't be anybody's story. That if I do my job right, what, what will happen is, is everybody will see the beauty of Jesus. They'll see their need for salvation in him and the fullness of life that he brings when we follow him. And they'll never turn away or chase after other things. But sadly, in my own experience as a pastor and the scriptures, what they say here is that that is just not the case. Paul says, don't count on it. And he writes this to Timothy so that Timothy won't be surprised. And subsequently, he writes it to us so that we won't be surprised when this happens either. But the scariest part about this idea, at least in my opinion, is that we have no idea who this will happen to. We have no idea who this is coming for. I mean, after all, here in the Ephesian church, these were people who were a part of the Ephesian church. These were people who had all the appearances of following Jesus. These were people who were rooted in this faith community, and yet they walk away. Yet, Paul says, expect them to walk away. And now while Paul doesn't say who it will happen to, he does kind of begin to pull back the curtain for us a little bit on why this is a reality that we experience. Let's keep moving. It says, now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. All right, so what? <laughs> I, I don't know how that strikes you, but that is not the first place that I thought Paul would go here, okay? Uh, people are gonna walk away from Jesus because of deceitful spirits and demons. I'm a little bit like, okay, you know what? I think that's enough for me today, guys. Uh, it's just got a little weird and I think I need to take a break for a few minutes. And maybe I'm alone in that, but I would imagine that I'm not. So let's stop here for a second and talk about what's going on. All right, there is a category here that many of us do not have as modern Western people. It's a category that we don't have, but the worldview of the Bible and much of the world today and much of human history has had, and that is the category of the supernatural. You see, we are a product of what is called the Enlightenment. Here in the West, we're the product of the Enlightenment, which was an intellectual and philosophical movement in the 17th and 18th centuries in Western civilization that placed a heavy emphasis on reason and rationality, especially regarding what could be tangibly observed in the material world. And as a byproduct of this movement, the prevailing attitude that spread throughout it and that we inherited was pretty much that if we can't touch it, taste it, smell it, see it, or hear it, it probably doesn't exist. And since we're ingrained with this material worldview from the time we get here, this, this means that when it comes to the supernatural for us, either we don't think that the supernatural world really exists at all, so that there's really no such thing as demons or devils or angels, whatever, it's all just the product of ancient imagination, or... We think if it does exist, it really doesn't affect my life all that much today. It really doesn't have any practical bearing 
on me. Maybe people in other countries deal with it. Maybe it's behind my car breaking down on the day of my big presentation at work. But other than that, it doesn't have a lot of impact in my day-to-day life. But the scriptures here paint a little bit of a different picture. The scriptures here indicate that there is very much a supernatural reality that overlaps with our material world. And not only does it exist, but that this reality is engulfed in a battle that we are all caught up in. No matter who we are, whether we're followers of Jesus or not, whether we're aware of it or not, there is a battle going on around us in the supernatural realm. Paul told the Ephesian church this uh, elsewhere in Ephesians 6, 12, where he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, meaning we don't wrestle just against the material. He says, our battle is not just against the material, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He essentially says, there is more going on here than meets the eye. There's more to it than just what we see. Paul here is helping us pull back the layers a bit to see, that what's, to see what's really taking place behind the scenes. But let's take a closer look actually to how Paul says these forces are actually at play. So picking back up in 1 Timothy, he says, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Here's what's going on. Paul says there is a group of people, he calls them liars, whom he says have seared consciences. The Greek word here means something like to be branded or to be burned with a hot iron. When someone is burned, their nerves no longer work, right? So they they lose sensitivity. And what he's saying here is that people in this Ephesian church have lost their sensitivity to the things of God. They have lost their sensitivity to the gospel, lost their sensitivity to the truth, lost their sensitivity to Jesus because they are surrounded with false and deceptive ideas. They are so engulfed with what we would call lies that they can't see what is true. And so they spread it to other people. Do any of these people think that they're actually following the teachings of demons? No, not at all. They've simply heard something that sounds good or right to them. They think they're doing what is right. They see the ways that others around them believe and live and carry on, and they're simply following suit. They think they are thinking clearly. And Paul's point here is, is that in reality, they're not. They're not. In reality, they have simply bought into a lie, and the lie led them away from Christ. It's a domino effect. It certainly began in the spiritual realm, but looks very natural when it makes its way all the way down to us. And the reason I bring this up and wanna talk about this a little bit today is because honestly, I think in many respects, we are blind to the true danger that lurks all around us. The real battle we face in life, the real war over our souls, the battle in front of Timothy and the Ephesian church isn't merely a battle over how we act or how we behave. It's not a battle over the things we do, but primarily it is a battle over our minds. At the risk of sounding crazy to you today, demonic forces are at play all around you. Just not how you might be tempted to think that they are. They are at play, but their chief mode of operation is deceit. In the Bible, the devil is referred to in a lot of different ways, but one of his primary characteristics or attributes is that of a deceiver. 
one who schemes and slanders and is full of untruth. In fact, in John 8, 44, Jesus says that the devil is a liar and the father of lies, that lying is his native tongue, so to speak. The Bible doesn't present him as a being whose primary mode of operation is to trip you up by, say, making your car overheat so that you lash out in anger because it made you late to work, or by getting that ad to pop up on your computer screen or wherever it may be to make you succumb to your lustful thoughts or anything like that. Rather, his chief strategy is deception and lies. He aims to get you to think, believe, and see things that are not true, such that you turn from God and to your own way. We actually see this all the way back in Genesis 3 in the garden. The devil here in the form of a serpent has a strategy of temptation with lies, bent truth, and deception. In Genesis 2, 17, God says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Then the devil shows up as the serpent in Genesis 3 and he says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Eve essentially tells him what God did say, but then the serpent, serpent replies to the woman and he says, you know, surely you will not die. You won't die for God knows that when you eat of this tree, your eyes are gonna be opened. You're gonna be like God, knowing good and evil for yourself. He says, did God really say that? Well, why did he say that? Are you sure it's not because he's holding out on you? Are you sure it's not because he wants to hold you down and he only says that because he's up there and you're down here and he doesn't want you getting to where he is? Hmm, sounds fishy to me. You see, Satan puts a question mark where God put a period. Satan puts a question mark where God put a period. Satan shows up and his goal for Adam and Eve was for them to worship him and choose allegiance to his kingdom. But he didn't just come right out and say that point blank. He didn't just show up in the garden and say, hey, worship me or I'm gonna bite you, right? It's much, 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 much more subtle than that. As Dallas Willard points out, he says, the devil comes not with a stick, but with an idea. The most poisonous thing about the serpent is not his bite, but his lies. And the exact same strategy is honestly employed against you and against me today. Did God really say? Can you really trust him on this? For what it's worth, I feel this in my own soul so, so much all the time. Over the past several years, I've come to realize that I have what, what some people call, namely what my wife calls control issues <laughs> all the time. I just want it. I want control. I want to be in control of my schedule. I want to be in control of my time. I want to be in control of my money, my future, my family, this church, all of it. I want to be the one with his hands on the wheel. Now, the scriptures are real clear. I'm not actually the one who's in control. God is in control. The scriptures reveal he is sovereign over all things, that he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, that he tells the sun when to rise and when to set, and he uses his sovereign power to shepherd and care for his people. But when I'm pressed, when my life actually starts to feel a little bit out of control, like when, when money is tight or when people or my kids don't do what I expect them to, how quickly the question marks just rise in my soul. Can you really trust God with this? Michael, do you really think he's going to take care of you? You know, Michael, it might be better if you were to take matters into your own hands on this one. I know you're praying, but are your prayers really doing anything? It might be better if you just 
lose some sleep tonight and come up with a plan for yourself. I mean, after all, doesn't the scripture say that a little sleep and a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty is gonna come on you like a robber? Seems to me, Michael, that you need to take matters into your own hands because God doesn't really care about what's happening to you. And maybe you shouldn't have followed him into this. It's question marks. Question marks that deny God's goodness and distort God's words. In fact, this is what lies at the root of so much, if not all of our sin, believing lies. We believe that something is better than God, that our way is better than his way, and that sin would give us what we really need while God, on the other hand, is holding out on us. So either he's not good for withholding this thing that we believe we must have, or he actually didn't mean what he said when he said, fill in the blank, whatever it is. Sin begins by distorting God's goodness and denying God's words. Before sin is about self-control or discipline or whatever, it is first and foremost about what we believe to be true. But here's the thing. I don't know about you, but I know for me, I don't wake up in the morning thinking, you know what? I wanna believe the devil's lies today. That sounds like a really fun idea. No, no, I don't think that, of course not. Really, the way it happens is it's, it's a little idea here or a subtle message there that distorts the truth. It's a small concession, a small action here or there, or I'll just take a glance, or I'll just listen for a minute, or I'll grab a little bit of control here that eventually snowballs to a place of destruction where I'm believing lie after lie after lie. You see, our consciences gradually get seared towards the things of God over time. His voice becomes a little less loud and our heart a little less sensitive. One commentator talked about the seared consciences in this passage like this. He he talked about it like a snooze button on an alarm. That one morning you press it one time, then the next morning two times, then three over and over and over again until eventually you just don't hear it at all, right? You sleep straight through it or you turn it off in your sleep. And if I can just be honest for a moment, when it comes to the enemy's work in your life, I'll be honest. I am not all that concerned with you going out and holding a seance or dragging out the old Ouija board or anything like that. I don't lose sleep at night over the thought of you traipsing out into the woods to worship Satan or anything like that. No, rather what I do lose sleep at night over is your newsfeed or the podcasts you listen to, the voices you surround yourself with the shows and movies that preach to you countless for countless hours each month, telling you how you ought to think, how you ought to believe, how you ought to live in this world. And let's not kid ourselves, they are preaching. What keeps me up is stories that you hear constantly about right and wrong and what freedom is and what freedom isn't and what oppression is and what it isn't, who is good and who is evil and all things like that because there are real spiritual kingdoms at war in those stories. There is more going on than just meets the eye there. And too often we are blinded to that reality. I lose sleep over seeing former members of our churches that I've known and loved and pastored and now see what they post on Instagram or Facebook. And I can't help but wondering who among us here is next. Which one of us next is gonna fall to the incredibly powerful deception of the enemy? I lose sleep because lies have the potential to destroy you. Now there, 
there are extreme examples of this that we see all the time. One that's really fresh on my mind right now because of a new Netflix series are the events that happened in Waco, Texas in the famous standoff between the FBI and David Koresh and his uh, cult, the Branch Davidians, you may be familiar. Uh, Koresh had basically convinced about 100 plus people in the middle of Texas that he was the Lamb of God called to usher in the events of the book of Revelation. And it's a true story and it's just utterly baffling. I mean, here they were, 40 some odd days into a standoff with the FBI of the United States, right? Their power was cut off. They had no milk for their kids. They were running out of food. Uh, All night, the FBI would blast lights and loud music into their compound, but not a single one of them would leave. None of them. No one would abandon ship. No one would leave unless David Koresh told them that they could. And I'm watching this and I'm going, just walk out the door. Just leave. What are you doing? Like you are actively making your life miserable when all you have to do is walk out and no one would because they were so convinced of the lie that it had shifted and rearranged everything in their lives. And in the end, 76 Branch Davidians, including 25 children, lost their lives. And while Waco might be a bit of a grandiose example or a caricature of this thing, this is happening all of the time, all around you and even in you. We can become trapped and destroyed by the lies that we believe. And here I think it's worth taking a look at what those lies were for the Ephesian church, like what the lies they were prone to believe were. Picking up in verse three, Paul goes on, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. I don't know how that strikes you when you hear it, but it makes me go, wait, they were being tempted by singleness and veganism? This weird text just got a little bit weirder, right? I mean, don't you expect these lies to be different? Don't you think they're gonna be something other than this? Don't you expect them to be something at least a little bit more licentious? Like, come on, demons, let's, let's pick something that seems really tempting here. But that's not it. These lies are different. Apparently what you have happening here in Ephesus is this group of false teachers is trying to persuade people towards some sort of quote unquote higher spirituality in the form of asceticism. So it's this idea of, hey, you, you care about godliness, don't you? You care about godliness and righteousness, right? Well, if you really cared about those things, you won't get married and you certainly won't eat this and you won't eat that. And Paul points out out here their error that denying foods in marriage aren't what make you holy. These things aren't what make you holy. The truth is, is that Jesus makes you holy. And as far as foods and marriage and the like go, he says, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. But to be honest, these lies seem, well, they seem innocuous, don't they? I mean, they seem, dare I even say, good. I mean, after all, self-denial lies at the core of Jesus' call to discipleship, right? These lies have an appearance of piety and religion to them, but they are distortions to the things that God has said. They distort the truth of salvation through Christ and grace alone and transform them into something else. They've turned it into Jesus plus something else equals salvation. But the truth is is that Jesus plus anything else equals nothing. 
But nonetheless, I think there are three important things that we can actually glean here from, from these temptations. And the first is this, that the devil is just as happy to take you out with religion as he is with rebellion. It makes no difference to Satan as long as it keeps you from faith in Christ. So let me maybe try to say this a little bit more clearly. The devil would be perfectly content for you to live a nice, quiet, moral life as long as it keeps you from trusting and following Jesus. He would be cool with it. He'd love for your life to externally look like you're doing all of the right things, but internally be cold to Jesus. He's content for you to be culturally Christian in your morality and maybe how you spend your Sundays, as long as it's without any actual substance of following Jesus. If it means that you're more dependent on your own holiness and less and less dependent on God's saving grace, the devil is more than happy to let you roll with it. Secondly, I think we see that the best lies contain some aspect of truth. These false teachers were taking some valid commands of God towards self-denial and fleeing idol worship and twisting it and distorting it. And I think it shows us thirdly that the lies of the devil play directly on our emotions and desires. They play to the things that we really want. For example, the devil is not in the back of any of our ears whispering, hey, you know what? Tupac is still alive. He's not saying that because that doesn't matter. Like that doesn't affect my life in the slightest. Who cares? No, no, no. Rather, it's deceitful ideas that play to my desires, the things that I want or really wish were true. What the New Testament calls the flesh, the disordered, disordered desires within me that draw me away from what is good and towards what is evil and destructive. Those are the things that the enemy wants to tap into. For the Ephesians here, it was the draw to the internal desire for self-righteousness, to be okay on our own, to work and earn our salvation. This is how the devil works, through deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires. And the reason this is so effective in leading us away from Jesus is because we can't live with a cognitive dissonance like this. None of us can. None of us can live our lives for that long saying that we believe one thing and living another way. We can't do it. And so the devil, the father of lies comes and he gives deceitful ideas that play to these desires and he tempts us towards what our sinful hearts long for. And rather than repenting and turning and coming back to Jesus, we believe another lie. We begin to believe that, well, my life isn't lining up with my beliefs, so I guess my beliefs were wrong. Since my life isn't lining up with these things, it must be that these things are wrong, not, not the way that I am living my life. I can't tell you how many times I have interacted with someone whose story goes something like this. I just couldn't stop hooking up with my girlfriend, so I don't really believe in God anymore. Now, obviously, that's a shortened version that lacks a lot of nuance to their story. There's a lot more details, but this is generally how it goes. It goes something like, hey, I wanna sleep with her and it feels good and it feels right to me. So God must be the one who's actually wrong here. Now that reasoning in and of itself is a non sequitur, but it's powerful because it's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of desire, what we really want. And in fact, it's how many of us deal with our guilt. We just say, hey, you know what? There's actually nothing to feel guilty of here anymore. And the warning to us here is that if we do that for long enough, it will ultimately turn us away from Jesus and destroy our soul. 
Do not underestimate the power that a lie has over you. Do not underestimate the power that a lie has over your actions, your behavior, and your very life. The lie entraps, the lie destroys, but the truth, as Jesus says in John 8, the truth is what sets us free. The truth is where true life, true joy, and true peace is found. And Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. And I I just wanna share with you here as we kind of begin to wrap things up, I just wanna share with you ways that I've seen lies just absolutely tear us apart. And we don't even see them coming. Things that we just naturally absorb and believe, you know what, this is right and true and good. This is how everybody lives their life. This is okay for me that wind up wreaking such havoc on our souls. I've watched men and women absorb the idea that in order for me to be happy or in order for me to have a full life, that I have to find romantic love. I've got to find romantic love. The nugget of truth in this or the partial truth in this is that you were made for love and you were made to have relationships. We as humans were made for these things, but the distortion is that, this, is that the love and relationships that God provides aren't enough. That the love and relationship God gives isn't enough. That God's love isn't enough. That relationships between brothers and sisters in the church isn't enough. That a long-term committed relationship with my spouse isn't enough. That what I really need, what I really need is a touch of romance. What I really need is some passion, some excitement, something that really gets me going. I need a husband or I need a wife or perhaps I need a different husband or a different wife. And once you believe that lie, Once you believe that you must have a certain kind of romantic love in life to have a full life, it is really not hard for me to predict your future. You are set up for all kinds of destruction. I've watched this lie lead people to affairs and tearing apart their families. I've watched people date or marry someone who doesn't share the fundamental foundations of their life, namely their faith in Jesus. And I've seen these people either suffer through years of eternal and external conflict, or, and this is what happens most of the time, they decide to throw the towel in on following Jesus altogether. Not all at once, to be sure, but slowly over time, leaving Jesus behind just becomes the path of least resistance. But the whole truth is that you are loved. The whole truth is you are loved and you are loved in a way that no earthly love will ever actually be able to compare. You are loved by God to the point that he gave his life for you. You are loved by a God who will never abandon you. You are loved by a God who will never stop loving you no matter how unworthy or undeserving you feel of it. And he has given you relationships, relationships to sustain you, namely relationships with himself and relationships with his people, brothers and sisters in the renewed community of God. And so no matter what the lie might want to tell you, you aren't alone. If you are in Christ, you aren't alone and you have everything you need for a full and joy-filled life. That's the truth, but the lie destroys Another one we get taught at every turn is the notion that God proves his love for us by things in our life going well for us. Now, the nugget of truth here is that God is a God who blesses his people and that suffering, pain, and brokenness are not a part of his original design for the world. But the the distortion becomes that if my life doesn't go well, 
or if my life doesn't go how I think it ought to, then God must not love me. If my bank account isn't full enough, if my kids go off the rails, if my life doesn't turn out the way that I planned or expected it to, there is either something wrong with me or there's something wrong with God. God, this isn't how things should be. So either I'm the problem or you're the problem. And that lie can come to you in any number of ways from a parent wound to a tragic loss to the death of a dream from being a part of an oppressed people or not having the body that necessarily meets the current cultural standards of beauty, whatever it may be. Satan does not care how we receive the message just as long as the message gets to us. And at best, what happens is it turns us into bitter and angry people at God. At worst, it moves us to believe that we are worthless and unlovable with hopelessness and despair filling every corner of our souls. Someone who walks away from God and sometimes, just to be honest, who walks away from life altogether. But the scriptures are unequivocally clear. The whole truth is that despite the fall, God takes care of his people and is always for their joy. And yes, suffering, hardship, and difficulty will happen, but they are part and parcel of life after the fall and should be expected for those who follow Jesus. But no matter what we face in this life, God will never forsake his people. He will never abandon his people. My favorite way to say it is that if God did not abandon us on the cross, then we can have confidence that he's not going to abandon us now. That's the truth. No matter how well things are going or how poorly things are going, the gospel tells us that God is for us and he is with us. That's the truth. But the lie destroys And honestly, I could rattle off several more examples of the lies we believe, lies about relationships, lies about money and everything in between. But I bring these few examples up just to help us see that this is the situation that we all find ourselves in. I mentioned earlier that Paul doesn't say who will fall away, just why they do. And I think the reason for that is fairly simple. It's because this is a warning for each and every one of us. The easiest thing in the world for us to do with with this sermon would be to think that all of these things are for somebody else. That all of these ideas are for one of our friends or maybe a family member or somebody from our life group. But this is not just a warning for them. It's a warning for you. It's a warning for me. It's a warning for all of us. In Matthew 13, when Jesus talks about the soils, he says, they receive the word with gladness and yet fall away. And there are many of us here who have received the word with gladness. But the sad truth is that we are dangerously unaware of the lies that still have sway over our souls. Or even worse, we are aware of them and have stopped caring. Lies about where true life and joy will be found. Lies about how life should be lived. Lies about ourselves, our relationships, and our world. And little bit by little bit, our consciences are getting seared. We care a little bit less about the things of God and then a little less and a little less and a little less until eventually we find ourselves in a place where we don't care at all. And what I want you to hear me say today is that you can stop following Jesus a long time before you actually stop following Jesus. You can stop following Jesus before you ever officially say, hey, I'm not a Christian anymore. And I believe that some of us are already on the path of walking away. You may not know it, but you are. 
You may not believe it and you may not want to admit it, but you are. And many of us have probably already had a friend who's tried to help, but we've just silenced them in our lives. We've told them that, hey, it's not that big of a deal, or you know what, it's just a season, I'm gonna be fine. You've casually reminded them that they're not perfect either, and so they should worry about their own stuff instead of yours. Or maybe you've just stopped showing up to the places that you know they're gonna be and press you, like your life group. And you're just hardening your heart one step at a time, one decision at a time, one action at a time, one thought at a time. And what I wanna leave you with today is the truth that none of this is benign, none of it. Behind all of this is a personal supernatural evil that wants to lead us away from Christ to our own way and our own demise. And all we saw was our newsfeed. All we saw was our watch list. All we saw were our friends who were really just glorified yes men. But it was something happening much further below the surface. And the father of lies got you and you were just too asleep to see it. So what do we do? How do we guard against the deception and destruction of the lie? Well, we learn to hear and obey the voice of Jesus, who is the truth. We learn to hear and obey the voice of Jesus over all the lies of the devil. And that's where we're going next week.